I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the next in our series in the book of Judges. And we've got to Judges uh, chapter 3. And we will be looking this morning from verse 7 uh, to the end of the chapter. So Judges chapter 3 and beginning at verse 7. As we come to God's word, let's pray together. Our Father God, we do ask that you would help us to understand and be transformed by what it is that you have to say to us this morning. Uh, Many of us here believe that your word is the sword of the Spirit, that it is living and active. Lord, that you speak uh, today through this ancient book. And so we pray, Father, that that would be all of our experience this morning. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory. Amen. So, friends, uh, judge, Judges chapter 3 and beginning at verse 7. Let's hear God's word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehad made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. 
and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are too big for their own boots. And there are those whose boots are too big for them. There are those who think very highly of themselves. And there are those who do not. And it is the lesson of the Bible and of all church history and of all Christian spirituality that it is the latter sort that God uses. He humbles us before he exalts us. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. He takes the things that are not and shapes them into weapons of righteousness for his namesake. Here in the passage we have in front of us, we have three very unlikely heroes. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Each of them, in many ways, the last people in the world you would expect that God would use. And yet he does. They're each, in various ways, rough diamonds. And so if you are here this morning feeling broken, Feeling unworthy. Feeling unsure of yourself. I want this morning through God's word to encourage you that it could be that God has you precisely in that kind of place. So that he might raise you up to use you. And if on the other hand you're feeling quite sure of yourself. 
I want to encourage you to learn the sort of people that God delights to use. Well, the first of these unlikely heroes is, uh, is Othniel. Othniel, poor Othniel, is the first of these, uh, beginning of these patterns, the standard cycle of the book of Judges, where God raises up a savior and the people rebel and then they fall into sin and then they fall into re- repression and then they repent and then God raises up a, another savior. He's the first of these three that we're looking at this morning, each of them uh, unlikely heroes, each of them emphasizing the the Clark Kent nature of spiritual superheroes. And Othniel, well, each time he's introduced, he is introduced by this diminutive kind of expression. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. What a way to be introduced in the Bible. The son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Imagine if you were introduced like that. Caleb, of course, was a famous great warrior. He was, along with Joshua, one of those who had seen the promised land and trusted God's promise and was vigorous in in spiritual vitality right up until his advanced old age. Caleb was a hero. Othniel was the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Imagine you go to a party and you're introduced like that. Uh, here is so-and-so. He's, he's the son of the younger brother of the senator. It's not exactly a boost for your self-esteem, is it? He's typically introduced this way. And in fact, in chapter 1, if you have a Bible open, it's fascinating when he's described this way a little earlier in, in uh, verse 13. Again, often you'll send like Kenab's Caleb's younger brother. Um, when he uh, uh, marries uh, 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 Caleb's uh, daughter and takes her for a wife, uh, Caleb promises that the, the one who has a, has a victory will be given certain land and all that. But, but Othniel is so diminished by his status that he can't even go up to his father-in-law to ask for the, for the favor. He sends his wife. He's too young. Some scholars think that he's kind of aristocratic because he's in the, in the Caleb lineage. But, but in a sense, though, there's some truth to that. The real issue that faced Othniel, that he was overlooked. Too young. Easy to sneer at. Or to diminish. This can sometimes happen to Christian leaders in their early years. A young pastor goes to a church and he's in his late 20s or early 30s and every old person in the church tries their best to listen to him but they can't get the past the fact that he's Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the younger brother of Caleb. It's hard to take him seriously. But not only that, Othniel was set up against Kushan Rishathaim. 
That uh, second part of his double-barreled name, Rishathaim, means the twice wicked, the double evil. It could be that it was a nickname given to him by the Israelites behind Cushan's back. There he goes, the double evil guy. Or it could be it was a name that he adopted for himself. Uh, he was uh, the king of Mesopotamia or Naharaim, this, this region of the, of the northwest of the, of the, of the Syrian or I- I- Iraqi area, Mesopotamia. He, he, he perhaps thought of himself as, as it were, the, the butcher of Baghdad. He was not Conan the Barbarian, he was Cushan the Barbarian. He was Al Capone, Osama bin Laden, all rolled together. The double bad guy. And Othniel has to fight him. What a mismatch. The younger descendant of of an aristocrat against Kushan Rishathaim. It would be like having a boxing match where in one corner was Prince Harry and the other corner was, was Mike Tyson. There could only be one winner. And yet, of course, it wasn't really Kushan Rishathaim against Othniel. He was against the Lord, verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. What a lesson for us. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. Perhaps that's our lesson. To not lean on our own strength or our status or our family heritage. But through prayer. Depend upon the Spirit. Or maybe we need to learn not to overlook the, uh, the Othniel types. It's possible in church life to have a kind of snobbery that overlooks those of a lower class. But it's also possible to have a kind of inverse snobbery where we can't imagine that God would use the, the younger brother, uh, uh, the, the son of the younger brother of an aristocrat. But sometimes he does. And perhaps most of all, those of us who are young, Not to let anyone look down on your youth. Well, next then, we come to Ehud. And if Othniel is too young, Ehud is, well, too different, I suppose. After Othniel's reign, there was 40 years of peace, and Ehud, with his kind of weird Al Yankovic rule, there was 80 years of peace. 
there's uh, Ehud, who is just an unusual character. He's one of the most well-known stories in the, in the book of Judges, but one of the least preached. And if he ever appears in church life, he appears in the, in the youth group who like to make a lot about the very fat man and the sword that kind of got sucked into his belly. It is a strange story. He goes to Eglon, king of Moab, and now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he turns back at the idols near Gilgal. Obviously, there was this pagan idolatry going on of, uh, of some uh, developed kind and has this hmm, double meaning. I have a secret message for you, O king. What a message it will be. And Eglon, who's a kind of uh, Jabba the Hutt sort of bad guy, silence and he sees him alone in his roof chamber and then Ehud gives the message what are we to learn from this well the, the, the narrator emphasizes his left handedness Ehud the son of Gera the Benjaminite a left handed man a very important detail. Uh, for us, to be left-handed could mean that you are particularly good at a certain kind of sport. It can be even an advantage. Uh, less, less people are left-handed than right-handed, but in the ancient world, to be left-handed was to be weird, unusual, odd, unlucky. In fact, the very word sinister in our language comes from the meaning from the left side. He was left-handed. And what is more, even though God had called him up to be a savior, the people and their craven uh, giving in to Eglon send a tribute through their champion. Uh, they, they don't have much faith yet, but uh, literally they send a tribute by his hand. And it is the very uh, hand which is used by, by God because, of course, he straps the sword to his, his right thigh. Uh, literally, when it says he's a, a left-handed man, it means literally that his right hand was withered. Perhaps he had a congenital defect. Or he had been wounded in some kind of accident. He had a withered right hand. What is more, get this, as he's introduced by the author, he is the Benjamite with a withered right hand. And of course, a Benjamite means son of my right hand. Here's Ehud, the son of my right hand tribe, who has a withered right hand. Oh, he's different. And it is his very withered right hand that allows him access to Eglon. A man whose right hand, his fighting hand, is withered, cannot be much danger. 
and the sword is concealed on the right side, not on the left where you'd expect it if you were right-handed. It is his very difference that allows him to be so used by God. Here, you may have a brokenness. You may have a physical brokenness. You may have something here this morning that you have pleaded that God would take away from you. And yet he has not. You're withered. Right hand. And yet it could be that that very brokenness is what God intends to use for greatness. Could be you have an emotional break, a brokenness. Something inside feels broken, withered. And you've pleaded with God to take it away, to heal you. It could be Ehud, withered, right-handed, of the tribe of the right, son of my right hand. It could be that very emotional brokenness that is intended by God to humble you. So that he might use you. Well then we come to Shamgar. Poor old Shamgar is just given one verse. He would certainly be easy to overlook. The only other time he appears is in chapter 5 verse 6 where it seems as if his judgeship was not very effective. In the days of Shamgar, son of Ethanad, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Doesn't sound like exactly a good resume for a politician. But it also might be that Shamgar was effective, but his saving rule was limited. And that might be why in chapter 4, verse 1, where it picks up the story, it doesn't refer to Shamgar's uh, judgeship at all, his rule at all. It just refers back to Ehud because he perhaps was only a savior of a portion of Israel. At any rate, he definitely is easy to skim over. But there's one very important word, the most important word in that one verse that indicates, I think, what the author is intending us to notice. And that is the word also. He also saved Israel. It's almost as if the author of the book of Judges can't quite believe it. Shamgar, who he? But he also saved Israel. If uh, Othniel was too young and Ehud too different, Shamgar is too simple. That, I think, is the de- why the detail about the ox goad. 
Uh, the ox goad is the implement was used, uh, a sort of sharp pointed stick that was used to prod oxen to go the right direction. In other words, he's a simple farmer. And when God calls him, he picks up whatever implement he has to hand, an ox goad, and by the Spirit of God, he advances against the Philistines, the most technologically advanced of these groups around Israel at the time, and does, has an amazing victory. The simple farmer with his ox goad. It's easy, isn't it, for us to think that high-ended education is what's required to train up budding leaders. And many of us who are Christians and know our church history, one of our great heroes is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon went to London and was like a a stick of dynamite in a dam that had been holding back revival. Extraordinary ministry from beginning to end. But what is often forgotten about Spurgeon is he had practically no education. Certainly didn't go to college. I wonder whether we would have been tempted to pack Charles Spurgeon off to university that he might learn how to preach better. Would Spurgeon have been better with an MDiv after his name? I've got nothing against theological education. I've done a lot of it myself. I spent years getting a PhD. I spent three years, to be precise, getting my PhD. And I prayed every day of that PhD that I would get it done in three years, which by God's grace I did. But I think it was almost as important not to get the PhD, but as a preacher afterwards to learn to forget the PhD. We fight not with the weapons of this world but independence upon the Spirit and His power. Oh, theological education can be used by God, but, it, but we're not to have a kind of theological education like a, like a medical textbook of a, of a cadaver or a dead body. Our God is alive. You can't define Him like a, like a dead body, like a machine. He lives. He does things. Sometimes He uses an Ehad or an, or an Othniel or even a Shamgar. I remember once of one person when I was sharing some difficulties I was going through and I was saying to this person, I'm looking for someone who can help me with them. And this person had very little education. And they looked at me and said, could it be that I could help you with that? What a lesson for me. I remember on, in the mission field, a former Muslim was converted and then became a preacher and a pastor. And he was trained through someone from Africa, a businessman, going to that country, seeing him in church and saying to him, God has shown me your face in a vision and has sent me here to train you to become a preacher. Put that in your theological textbook. God does sometimes do the unusual, the unexpected. He picks unlikely heroes. And the only connecting theme is they're willing to be used 
even in their brokenness. And they're written to teach us how we too might be used by God. Except, they're not really written for that purpose at all. They're written to teach us, with all their lessons that we can learn about how to be used by God, to point us not to them as saviors, but to the Savior. The most unlikely hero, the most unusual Savior of all. A Jew from a despised race come to save both Jews and Gentiles. There was nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. A man of sorrows, stricken for you, broken for you, wounded that you might be healed. He is the Savior. He is my Savior. And I long with all my heart that he would be yours too. Would you come to him this morning and have him as your Savior, your King, your Lord? And don't, I beg you, refuse him because He's not what you expected. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word and we pray that it would draw us to see the Lord Jesus as our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for these unlikely heroes from the Old Testament. Help us as a church to rely upon your spirit, to tremble at your word. But most of all, help us as individuals and as a church to look to the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. We bow before you, Lord. Redeemer. Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.